mentioned, we are starting part one of this great series that I'm hoping and praying uh, is going to be a significant blessing and encouragement to us. Um, if you've been around church life for a long time, you might have heard of a book called The Purpose Driven Life, um, or maybe you were even part of a church that, that did what we call the Purpose Driven Life campaign at the time. Um, this came out many, many years ago, and in fact, to my knowledge, to this day, the book itself is the um, highest or best-selling uh, book, hardcover book in history other than the Bible. Um, like quite, quite unusual, I would say supernatural actually, that, that a book that the author, Rick, Rick Warren, actually says is like just a simple book. Uh, he's been more surprised probably than anybody else at just how much um, interest and response there has been to this book over the years. And so, and so a great deal of what we're talking about over the next few weeks um, does come out of this material and out of extraordinary material that supplements it as well. So if you are wanting to read in more detail, then I'd encourage you to grab a copy of The Purpose Driven Life. You would be able to get that from, I think, Kumbooks and Canal Walk would have it. Otherwise, you can download a, well, buy a version. Buy and download a version on uh, Kindle, etc., and you can follow along with us. <coughs> what I'm wanting to do today, before we get into these five core purposes that God has actually planned for our life, is I'm wanting to do like a type of introduction. And if you miss everything else that I say today, like if you don't hear anything else that I unpack, I want you to hear this very simple but significant idea. You are not an accident. You are not an accident. There are accidental parents, plenty, but there are no accidental children. There are illegitimate parents. There are no illegitimate children. You were created in the image of God. You were thought about beforehand. You were wanted. You matter. You are valuable to God. You are not an accident. Now, for some of us, that, that is a deeply meaningful truth. For others, it can almost sound a little bit sentimental or trite. And I, and I get that. Like in the natural, that can be like, yo, yo, ugh, great, but not an accident. All right, move on. But the reason why this is so significant is because if we're not convinced to our core that we are not an accident, it is very tempting for us to live our lives by accident, unintentionally, without reflecting, taking stock, uh, evaluating whether or not we're actually living an intentional, purpose-driven life. Now, to be very, very clear, just a couple of disclaimers. In the natural, there is so much about this idea that messes with my head. Immediately, it brings to question and has, for most of my adult life, brought, brought to mind questions like, um, why? Like, why would some people be allowed to be born into such broken, dysfunctional families? What about kids that are born into war-torn uh, environments? And th th there's a whole bunch, okay? <clears throat> I have wrestled over some of these questions. I have tried to come to terms with some of the sort of theology around it, but it still doesn't make it easier when someone has been brought up in a home feeling unwanted or when someone has felt as though they've never quite compared or been good enough, etc. Um, or maybe, maybe you've, you killed it. You 
you're kind of that, you know, poppy that, that rose above everyone else. And so you don't, you've never really felt like you've needed God to actually reveal his purpose and plan because you know exactly what you wanna make your purpose and plan. That, that could be the case. And I think that there's a danger in both extremes. The, the one denies God, the other one thinks that they don't need God. Until life falls apart or until you start realizing that, that just trying to make our best life now is not, is not gonna be sufficient when some of, the, some of the scaffolding of life starts to fall apart. And unless we allow this truth, and, I, and I'm acknowledging that there's very little that I can do in the natural to convince you of this. I'm saying that unless we allow God to actually give us a revelation, unless that light bulb goes on, unless we connect with the truth that you were planned, that you were wanted, that you are not accidental, that you're not, just, that you're not just one in seven and a half billion. Unless that truth sinks in, we're just gonna drift through life, even if your life looks pretty impressive compared to others, as opposed to actually living a very focused, purpose-driven life. The thing about vision and focus is that you actually realize the fewer options that you have. When you know, when you have a clear sense of what you were made for, both on a broad level in terms of in the image of God and, and, and who he's created us to be because who is before do, but also as you, as you discover increasingly how God has uniquely wired you and gifted you and put your personality together and your limits, by the way. I know the world wants us to believe that there are no limits and if you dream it, you can achieve it or if you believe it, you can achieve it. I, I get that and there's, there's, there's an element of truth in that in terms of our mindset. But but it's only to the extent that we realize that God actually has a very deliberate, intentional plan for our lives that we actually tend to remove some of the extra baggage, some of the other options. And they don't have to be bad things. In fact, there can be lots of great options. But if it's not what's gonna help you move in the direction that God has created us for, we're gonna land up drifting and we're gonna live diffused lives, fractured lives, instead of very focused, purpose-driven, intentional life. So I wanna read a few <coughs> passages of scripture to you. And more than you just hearing these words, my hope is that you would receive truth. This isn't just a nice piece of literature. This isn't just another poem or another piece of history. Even though I'm reading this from a tablet, this is coming from the inspired word of God. And, and, and there's an element of this where, we, where, where a level of faith is required. Okay, God, is it possible that this is true? Is it possible that this is real? So listen to a couple of passages. Psalm 139 verse 13 and 16 is David who became King David uh, writing a psalm which is a little bit more on the poetic side. There's a little bit of license involved. But he says to God in verse 13, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. Now, I'm, I don't wanna build doctrine on this because this, this is a poem, this is a song um, that, that was written in the book of Psalms, but I want, you to, I want you to see a trend as I look at some other passages as well. In the book of Jeremiah, this is in the Old Testament. Jeremiah became one of the, the major prophets. Um, God used him significantly to speak to to the nation of Israel. In chapter one, verse five, this is God speaking to Jeremiah. He says to him, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. 
I've got to tell you, I remember as a guy in my 20s, often going back to this passage, like almost reflectively thinking like, God, like really? Is this true? You knew me before I was formed. In, in other words, it, like there really was a plan. <clears throat> this was intentional, this wasn't accidental. Because if that's true, it changes everything. If that's true, then there's quite a bit more at stake, but, but also it means that, that like you're noticed. You're wanted. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. Now, again, this is a specific message from God to Jeremiah, but is it possible that this is true for you? Not that you're a prophet to the nations, just relax. I mean, it's weird. The wrong people want to claim that for themselves and then, and then other people just don't want any part of it. It's like, I wish we could just find a balance. Anyway, this was a unique message to Jeremiah. But let me ask you this. Is it possible? Is it possible? I'm just asking if it's possible that God would say to you today, before you were born. It could, you could have been born into the biggest mess. You could have been born and told that you were unwanted from the very beginning. You could have been born into just, just the most incredibly dysfunctional circumstances. But is it possible that God would say to you, before you were born, I set you apart. I set you apart. I appointed you. In other words, I have a call, I have a plan, I have a purpose for your life. And, and it doesn't mean that that has to be noticeable or impressive to other people. Please, you, please, it makes sense that what the world would value is not necessarily the same as what God would value. And I am truly convinced that some of the people that one day when we get to the other side of eternity, that some of the people that would have added the most value and made the most difference would have gone completely unnoticed this side of eternity. So stop comparing yourself to somebody else or to what others seem to think are noticeable. You have no idea the value that your single life can, can, can play just being faithful and obedient where you are. We have no idea, no idea the eternal significance that God can, can, can add to a, just to a single life that is just open and willing to walk in his purposes. And even if no one ever sees it, if no one else ever affirms it, if no one else ever gives you a high five or pat on the back or, or you put into the hall of fame of Christians, I don't know, which doesn't exist. Like, no, no. It, it is possible that you can put your head on the pillow at night and without being arrogant, without being delusional, say, I was made for this. I think, I think I'm pleasing God. Not perfectly, but, but I'm not drifting from day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year. No, no, I, I know that I'm not an accident. Before you were born, before you were born, sorry, I know I'm getting stuck on this. I just feel like, like there are people that need a revelation that before you were born. Moving to the New Testament in Galatians 1 verse 15, I forgive the mistake on the screen, it's my fault. This is Paul, one of the early church leaders, writing to a bunch of Christians in, in a place called Galatia. He says that even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. 
even before I was born. Now, the reason why this is significant is, is for those of you that, that are less familiar with the Bible, Paul was a terrorist against Christians, against followers of the way, against followers of Jesus before he met Jesus. Which is also, by the way, why you should just judge a little bit less people that aren't agreeing with you about Jesus. Because you never know. And they're creating the image of God too. You know that you're trying to create God into your image when you think he hates all the same people you do. You will never lock eyes with someone that doesn't matter to God. Paul was a terrorist until he met Jesus. And you know what's interesting? Is that, is that a lot of that raw material is exactly what God had put in him to use for his purpose. It's just that Paul wasn't willing to use it for God's purpose. He thought he was. So, so he was deceived, and that's okay. Lots of people are deceived. But that same tenacity, that same zeal, that same dogged determination where, get out of my way. I wanted, Paul thought he was doing what was right when he was killing Christians or overseeing the persecution and martyrdom of Christians. And those, that same raw material, those same strengths, God was able to redeem and use to write more than two-thirds of the New Testament and plant churches all over Asia Minor. We are here today in part because here's a man who, after he met with Jesus, realized that, he, that, that Jesus actually had a different plan for his life than what he thought and that he had planned him beforehand. But again, I don't want you to compare your life to what sounds like a dramatic life. What is a dramatic life? God is looking for us to live obedient lives. Ephesians 2 verse 10, one of my favorite passages for so many reasons. For we are God's masterpiece. Again, can I ask, in fact, in fact, can you close your eyes? Don't, don't fall asleep, just relax, okay? Stay, stay on high alert, but just close your eyes for a moment. I'm gonna change the language of this passage to address you. I want you to hear this. You are God's masterpiece. He has created you and you in Christ Jesus so you can do the good things he planned for you long ago. He planned stuff for you long ago. Now, you can open your eyes and take a look at the screen. Can I get you just, just under your breast to actually turn, to actually turn the language in that passage to me or I, for I am God's masterpiece. In fact, don't even move on. Do you know how much just that simple revelation alone will change your life? Wait, what? I'm his masterpiece? His work of art is what some translations say. For I am God's masterpiece. He has created me anew in Christ Jesus. So that I can do the good things he planned for me long ago. You are not an accident. It is so important for us not to think of ourselves as accidents so that we don't live accidental lives where we are just drifting, where we just react to 
to the influences of life around us, but where we are trying to live meaningful, <laughs> intentional lives. And we're gonna be unpacking a lot more of that in the weeks ahead. What I wanna take a look at in the last remaining moments are what I would call um, challenges or steps that we can take to, towards actually avoiding accidental living. It's nothing profound, but it, it is meaningful. And I think if we are open to identifying something that we can shift so that we don't just live accidental lives, so that we are actually living responsive, reactive, intentional lives to God's love, it's gonna make a difference. Number one is simply to remove distractions to your destiny. Remove distractions to your destiny. I think a better word than distractions would actually be competitions. There is, there is, please, please hear me. There is competition on for your destiny. There's competition on for your destiny. And I can't help thinking that sometimes the enemy and the forces of darkness are more motivated to deny us of our destiny than what we are motivated to fight for it. In fact, I've got, I've got a, a mail. I don't know if you ever mail yourself so that you don't you know, forget stuff that you think is quite meaningful, but then you forget about it three days later or two minutes later. So, so, so I've got a mail that I've sent to myself and then every now and then I will reply to that again as I keep adding scriptures and passages to it. And the subject of the, of the mail is simply fight back or fighting back because I feel like I'm in a season where I have to fight back. And it, and it concerns me that sometimes I can, I can kind of live with too low an awareness of the fact that I am in a battle. I am actually in a war. If that scares you, I'm sorry, that's in the Bible. Like we are actually living in a spiritual battle, in a spiritual war, and whether or not we fight back or just allow ourselves to be uh, distracted and discouraged and derailed, it matters. For those of you that follow the news, probably I imagine many or most of us we find it quite inspiring how the people, the inferior army of Ukraine are just refusing to give up. Where you've got people that are hunkered down in Mariupol just refusing to surrender. There is a determination. They feel like there's something more important at stake than, frankly, than their own lives. Can I suggest to you that there's something more important at stake than just your immediate comfort. And it's worth fighting back. Remove distractions to your destiny. Fight back against competition for your destiny. Couple of examples. One is that I think we can be distracted by impossible questions. I, I say this so carefully because, because I think that it's really important that we do wrestle over valid questions. And, and I think that that's part of how God has wired me to want to understand the understandable. However, I've had to be careful where I get hung up and derailed, I'm talking especially in the early years, by, by hanging on to questions that actually in part, God is saying, Jason, you, you're not going to fully understand this, this side of eternity. And I don't say that as a cop-out, because again, there's a lot that we can understand. But guys, there are things that are just hard, if not impossible, to get my head around, your head around, this side of eternity. Now, that doesn't mean that everything is just blind faith. In fact, I don't think that faith is blind. I think that faith has to be based on something. 
So when I say not getting distracted by impossible questions, I mean, there needs to be enough that I am sure of, enough that I am confident about in God, that I can hold loosely onto those things that are still a mystery to me, that are still confusing for me. And just, just so you know, for my personality, that was never easy. Like it's take, God has had very patiently helped me get to a place where I can have peace that passes understanding. In other words, it's beyond, it doesn't make sense because the facts are still there, it still messes with my head, but God, there's enough about you that I know and that I'm confident about that I can, that I can be confident in the confusion. Be careful that you give appropriate time and energy to, to meaningful questions, but, but don't be distracted like in an unhealthy, unhelpful way with questions that are actually just impossible to fully answer the side of eternity. Another distraction is guilt. There are people that actually allow their destiny to be distracted because of living in light of past failure. And again, you don't wanna make light of that stuff. You wanna learn from it where possible. You need to own it. You need to apologize for it. And, but we need to grow from it and move forward. It is not God's plan for our past to determine our future. If that were the case, nobody would be more disqualified than the Apostle Paul. And some have, some have suggested that that could have been one of the biggest things that he, that he had to wrestle over, was knowing that I was there. I mean, the very first Christian martyr that is recorded in the book of Acts, Stephen the martyr, Paul was there, approving. I mean, there's stuff for us to feel guilty about. How would you like to know that, hey, you, you were supporting the death of one of the chummies of the people that you're now, you know, fighting for? That's hectic stuff to let go of, guys. And the Bible is packed. I mean, if you and I were to write the Bible, we wouldn't write it the way it's written because there's so much scandal, shame, failure, imperfection. Like, like the Bible is not a book full of bulletproof Chuck Norrises who just got everything right. It is, it is actually full of a lot of failure. But I love that the story doesn't end when they failed. It actually moves forward to where you see them learning and growing and being humbled and, and, and being redeemed. Guys, there's hope. Don't let your past determine your future. God has a destiny. It is a distraction if you're going to allow yourself to be overly limited by mistakes that you've made in the past. And I, I, I can't help but think that, especially for parents, that there are a lot of parents that, that, that if you look back, there are, even objectively speaking, it is so easy to look back and see mistakes made and failures made. And maybe, maybe you're here today or maybe you're watching this online or listening to the podcast and maybe your kids want nothing to do with you and haven't spoken to you in years. I can only imagine how hard that is. And especially if you feel like there's legitimate reasons for that. And that, again, I'm not gonna water any of that down. But I'm just saying, you can either live in the past or you can try and write a new future. Well, Jason, I'm trying to apologize. And I don't want to, just keep, then start by just, just praying for them every day. Who knows? Maybe a year from now, two years from now, maybe they're willing to have a cup of coffee. Maybe they're willing to receive a gift. Maybe, I don't know. I, I, I don't wanna be sentimental about this stuff. I'm just saying, don't allow your past to determine your future. Another distraction is simply resentment and anger. And the scary part of this is that the person with the resentment is normally the person affected far more 
than the person to whom you are resenting. When we hold on to unforgiveness, we discover that the person in captivity is the one that refuses to forgive. And again, not watering anything down. Some of you have experienced horrible injustices, abuses, just ugliness, stuff that, stuff that you should never be able to justify. By the way, if you can justify it, you don't need to forgive it. Just saying. When you actually need to forgive, it, is, it means that it's unacceptable. There's no sufficient reason for this. We're not trying to explain why or how. Oh, it's a shame, it's okay, we just water it. No, no, forgiveness is that was done, that was unacceptable, there's no valid excuse for it. You might be able to explain stuff, but you can't excuse it. And I'm gonna forgive you anyway. I'm gonna let it go. Forgiveness is not dependent on the offender. They might not care. They might be like, that's your problem. But what you're doing is you're letting yourself free from the captivity, from the hurt, from the venom that is unforgiveness. In the words of that great Norwegian theologian, Princess Elsa, let it go. We can be distracted by fear. And again, this may be the result of legitimate trauma, unrealistic expectations, growing up in a high control home, or even in some cases a genetic predisposition. But we need to be so careful that we don't allow fear, legitimate or otherwise, to actually rob us of our destiny. Don't feel bad when you feel like, why am I, why am I experiencing fear? Doesn't mean I don't have enough faith. Well, the only time you need faith is when there's fear or risk. The only time you need courage is when there's fear. Courage isn't present unless there's fear. But courage is when the fear of not acting becomes greater than the fear of acting. So you might, you might listen to Tammy and Race encouraging you to join a life group. Maybe there's a legitimate fear because you've been disappointed before, you've been let down before by, by people in a church, in this church, in another church, whatever. And so, there's, and so there's a fear of getting connected again or even more so of actually getting vulnerable. That may be a legitimate fear. But courage is when the fear of not acting becomes greater than the fear of acting. So, so if I stay isolated, that could be catastrophic. Do I really wanna take that risk? When no one gets to know me, when no one has my back? Or do I wanna risk being disappointed? Fear can be a very real distraction. And, and the answer to fear is not perfect faith, it's love. 1 John 4 verse 17 says that as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. Please notice that word, grows. Not gross, grows. Like it, it grows. Don't allow yourself to be beat up when you are not sure that your love for God is perfect. No, no, it's growing. It's a journey. And it's to the extent that we keep pressing in and keep trying to spend time with God and, and, and trying to be sensitive to Him that our love grows. Verse 18, such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. What a great verse. That's a good verse to put on your fighting back email. Another distraction is materialism. Materialism is not so much having stuff as when we allow stuff to have us. 
if we allow stuff to have our heart, if we, if we are overly anchored to stuff, it is going to distract us and it is going to, in all likelihood, destroy us if we are looking to stuff for salvation. In other words, to make me feel at peace, content, fulfilled, safe for the future. This is understandable. It's understandable that we would think we're more safe and secure in the future if we have stuff, but, but stuff can still not be enough. And I've seen so many people in the last while that have had medical diagnoses and, and tragedies and challenges where money is not, money can, can only help so much. But there is one that we can be anchored to that doesn't disappoint, doesn't let us down. I love the statement by Rick Warren, nothing matters more than knowing God's purposes for your life and nothing can compensate for not knowing them. Another distraction is a need for approval. So many adults are still trying to earn the approval of unpleasable parents. In some cases, and I mean this sincerely, in some cases those parents are dead. But there is such I guess it's a level of insecurity in needing to prove ourselves and prove them wrong. And that's understandable. Psychologically, that's not hard to get our heads around. Or wanting to prove ourselves to colleagues, to family members, to, to those neighbors who thought we'd never make it. To people that, that always thought that you kind of just, just came from the wrong side of, of the tracks. That's, that's understandable, but is it possible that that's a tactic of the enemy and that we're actually allowing ourselves to be distracted from the enemy. You think that you're trying to prove yourself to that person. Man, I just think the enemy's like, got him, got her, because the other person doesn't even necessarily care. So, number one, we want to be exceptionally careful that we do all we can to remove distractions. Number two, and I'm, gonna be wrapping things up in a moment, is that we wanna respond to God's revealed will. How do we avoid living an accidental life? We remove distractions, like doggedly, like actually look out for distractions as competition for your destiny. But secondly, we are determined to respond to God's revealed will, quickly and consistently. Quickly and consistently. I love this statement by Andy Stanley, that obedience to the known will of God paves the way to the unknown will of God. I don't know how many years ago I heard that quote, but that has stuck with me. Anytime I'll be trying to discern God's unique will for a situation, it's like, okay, well, are you being obedient to the revealed will of God? Are you being, are you being obedient to what you know has been made clear in scripture? Because why, now, again, God is so much kinder than what I am, okay? He's way nicer, way more gracious, way more merciful. But I'm just telling you, my personality, I'd be thinking, why am I gonna tell you something unique when you won't obey what I've already told you explicitly? Now, I'm not saying that God's exactly the same, but I think that there's an element of what God's saying, be faithful with a little, and I'll give you more. So let's make sure that we are responding to the revealed will of God. John Bevere says that spiritual maturity is tied to obedience, not time. Can I say that again? It is tied to obedience, not time. Don't think, well, if I'm a Christian for 20 years, I'll be mature. 
I've been around long enough to tell you that is not the, not the case. Not by a long shot. And frankly, I just look at my own life. I don't magically mature year on year. It is to the extent that I allow God to do what he's trying to do in my life. It's to the extent that I obey God. We need to be willing to try and willing to fail. We have to be willing to fail as we try to obey God. And lastly, number three is to relax in God's love. To relax in God's love. This might sound so foreign to to some ears depending on what you think of God, what you think of Christianity, or maybe what your church experience has been. I initially thought of maybe making this rest in God's love, but I think relax is so much more descriptive. Because rest can be so broad, it can be so general. Like, yeah, okay, I'm resting in God, resting in God. Like, if you, if you stick around church long enough, you'll find, like, nice, you know, beautiful cliches. And there's nothing wrong with the cliche. There's a reason why it becomes a cliche, because it's said a lot. But, but don't let it just be a cliche. You're invited to actually relax, be secure in, rest in the love of a trustworthy father, the kindest person that you will ever meet. As we discover God's will, as we make mistakes, as we try again, we rest in his grace and love. And we allow him to invite us again and to respond again and to do the best that we can. I don't want you to miss what I'm trying to get at with this final point because this is the distinguishing difference between Christianity and any other religion, worldview, or philosophy. It is simply this, that you are loved first. Before you perform, before you produce, before you get everything right, so long before you're perfect, because that only happens when you're dead. Every other religion, every other form of salvation, everything else is about what I have to do. Now, some people have misunderstood that and thought, okay, cool, I'm loved, yay. Party! No, no. If I realize that I am loved, my heart is melted and I can't help but want to respond. So it's not, so the, the order really matters. I'm not trying to earn something. I'm not trying to prove myself. I'm not trying to climb my way up to God. No, no, God's come down. Jesus came down to us. That's what we celebrated last weekend. He paid the ultimate price. He said, that's how much you're worth. And and we can only respond. So when we realize how loved we are and and that that God was the initiator, I'm just telling you, there's this weird thing that starts to happen where you can actually relax in God, where you actually start to rest in Him and you realize that He is trustworthy. But again, it's a journey, everybody. It's a journey. Some of you know that Sue's been away for the last week and a bit. She's on her way back now from, from Europe. We went to go visit her, her grand who's turning 90 and is kind of like in, in the last season of her life, I guess you could say. And I, love, and I love how in our family, because we, we have iPhones, we can, you know, we've got that little app where you can find my iPhone. It's not creepy if it's your family, it's okay. 
So I love, so I love that I can see, oh, you know, Sue's in Zurich right now, or Sue's back at the flat in uh, Steinach, etc. And just out of curiosity, the one day I punched the address into Google Maps just, just to see if it would give me, if it would like malfunction or tell me how to drive to Steinach, which it did. Tell me, told me I'd take about seven days of 24 hour driving and, and 12 and a half thousand kilometers. And, but, but what's amazing is if, is if you go to the direction that you can actually scroll down page after page after page after page after page of how to get to this part of Switzerland from Cape Town. But if you actually press start, all that you're gonna hear from that little voice is turn right. Unless you need to turn left, then I'll say turn left. And the reason why I think so many Christians trust Google more than God is because we've allowed Google Maps to earn our trust. But the only way that it's earned our trust is by following its directions. We weren't, I remember when Google Maps first came out, I didn't trust Google Maps. I kept thinking I had a better plan until I was proved wrong enough times and then I started to mostly trust Google Maps. Guys, is there a better picture for learning to trust God? Don't wait until you have this perfect faith. Take the next step. Obey the right next thing that you know to do and see if your confidence in God doesn't increase because you're giving him the space to actually prove himself in, in the sense of, I don't mean to disrespect that, I mean we're allowing God to, to show himself to be trustworthy. Guys, let's not live accidentally. Let's get to a place where we actually trust God more than Google Maps. Come on, why don't you stand with me? We're gonna pray in a moment. I have one more verse to read to you. One that I think is worth hanging on to. Again, you can put this in your fighting back armory. Romans 8 verse 28 says that we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. What an incredible promise. Not, not that everything will be good. The Bible never promises that. People have lied to you if they've ever told you that the Bible says anything about promising you some pain-free, inconvenience-free, comfortable, name it, claim it, blab it, grab it type of, of, no, 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 no. Then they're not reading the Bible properly. But it does tell us that if we love God, if we will trust God, if we will respond to God, that He will cause all things, terrible things, ghastly things, evil things, that He can take the worst of circumstances and he can turn it around for good. Moses had to be abandoned as a baby because a maniac wanted to murder and was murdering all the children, all the boys around his age. So he, he was literally sent adrift on a river. That's, you talk, that's terribly unjust. That's terribly messed up. But God caused it to work for good. He didn't waste that pain. He caused it to deliver millions of people. But 80 years later, 
It took a lot of trial and error. It took a lot of failing, being disillusioned, disappointed. Moses tried to take things into his own hands at the age of 40, killed an, an Egyptian. He thought, boom, I'm gonna be the deliverer. And it wasn't like that. The people that he thought would be grateful weren't grateful. And he went and wandered around the wilderness for 40 years. But in those 40 years, God was actually doing the deeper work that he could use for the last 40. God will never waste your pain if you will allow him to do what only he can do. So this is what I want you to do. And it can sound so frustratingly simple. My encouragement to you is to do the next right thing you know to do. Is that what? The next right thing you know to do. Whether you know it from scripture, whether someone that you trust has, has maybe basically answered a question that you have about trying to follow God and whatever that next step is, or whether it's a prompting, whether, again, maybe, maybe as Tammy and Racer spoke about joining a group or, or even this idea of tithing, whatever. If something is standing out to you, something is prompting you, do the right, do the next right thing you know to do. We can complicate it so much sometimes. No, no, take the next step. Google Maps, turn left. Turn right. Take the second exit out of the roundabout. Do the next right thing you know to do. Follow the next prompt. Follow the next step, the next instruction. Father, in Jesus' name I pray. <clears throat> Lord, more than anything else, if this hasn't settled in yet, then please will you help us to receive this truth that regardless of circumstances, that nobody listening to this is an accident. God, there's so much about this world that is messed up and frustrating and discouraging and, and, and worthy of grief and mourning. But there isn't a person that is breathing at any point of the planet that was an accident. It's impossible for us to get our heads around that, but God, there are no accidents. We are created by you, we are created for you. And we are created, in essence, in the image of God. So Lord, wherever people need to allow that truth to begin a healing journey, please help them to dare to believe that, to meditate on that, to reflect on that, to allow you to love them. And Lord, for those of us that are needing to identify distractions that we're just allowing to rule our lives, but it's leading to accidental living, will you help us to remove those distractions? God, where we've, where we've been very nonchalant about responding to you, will help us to become determined to quickly and consistently obey you. Help us to have an answer that says, yes, what's the question? And God, would you help us to relax in your love? Please. Help us to relax in your love and to trust you as we follow one step at a time, one prompt at a time, one instruction at a time, trusting you that you will cause all things to work together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Help us to do the next right thing we know to do in Jesus' name, amen.